You may be seated. You know, Jesus preached on the kingdom of God time and time again. His first coming marked the inauguration of the kingdom of God breaking into human history. Now, this doesn't mean that the kingdom of God was fully realized at the time of Christ, and it doesn't mean that it's fully realized in this time in which we live. Um, But what we do know is that the Bible promises that the consummation of the kingdom of God uh, will one day come in the future at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then the kingdom of God will be fully realized in all of its parts, which means that when he comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? That's a wonderful thought. I hope it is to you as well. You know, um, this might be clear to us, it might even be promising to us and encouraging to us, Um, but for those in the first century during the time of Christ, there was a great deal of of confusion amongst those early believers concerning this issue of the kingdom of God. And the reason is because they had a hard time reconciling what Jesus was teaching and what Jesus was saying with what they were seeing occurring around them. In other words, Jesus kept saying, hey, behold, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's preaching that everywhere he goes, but they're seeing so few people responding in faith to that call. So few people uh, repenting and believing and submitting themselves to God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to Romans, so Roman, the Roman people know a thing or two about how a kingdom is supposed to be run. And in their mindset, they have no conception of this idea of how a kingdom can come, but not all the enemies have been done away with, and how not everybody is on their knee to the king. So what Jesus is saying and what they're seeing doesn't seem to completely make a whole lot of sense. But it's also a little bit discouraging, uh, because as Jesus is continuing to share the good news, repent and believe, um, there's not a whole lot of people that are coming to faith in Christ. In fact, the, the, the vast majority of them are not accepting Christ, they're rejecting Christ. And stop and think just for a couple moments about those in the first century church who first became believers. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. In other words, do the same thing that I was doing to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And we said, okay, we will. We'll go out and we'll preach to all those people. And they begin to preach, and the people that they're preaching to aren't nearly as receptive as that they were hoping them to be. And so they're like, hey, listen, this is good news. Why aren't people submitting to it? So in light of that, Mark writes chapter 4 here in his gospel. He understands their concerns and their frustrations. So what he does is in chapter 4, he includes a series of parables uh, uh, concerning the, 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 uh, the kingdom of God that Jesus taught. And so his purpose is twofold, both to clarify what the kingdom of God is actually like, And it's also to encourage them to keep sharing the gospel, keep sharing their faith with other people so that as Revelation chapter 7 says, at one day there will be a number of people beyond what anybody can count from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people glorifying God and giving Him the glory that He and He alone is due. So what he does, and remember last week we began and I introduced the first parable, the parable of the sower and the seed, all right? So and remember there were three things we identified within that parable, the sower, the seed, and the soil. The sower, the farmer, is first and foremost Jesus. He's 
the sower, and the seed is the word of God, the life-giving word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes preaching the gospel everywhere he goes, the sower, sowing seed. Now, what we found out next is that there was also some soils. The sower came to sow some seed, and as he sowed, the seed fell upon four different types of soils. Uh, There was the hard soil, there was the rocky soil, there was the thorny soil, soil, and there was the good soil. Now, of all four, now those, those soils, different soils, represent the different heart conditions of men. And of all of those, three of the four demonstrate a heart condition of man that ultimately rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only one of those, the good soil, demonstrate a heart that both hears the word, receives the word, and produces fruit and evidence, which gives, gives belief to the fact that they truly have received life through the person of Jesus Christ, that they've truly been born again. So what we want to do is we want to unpack now, before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to kind of take a closer look at those four different heart conditions. Remember the first three, they, do, they ultimately reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, and finally the fourth one receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we begin to unpack them, I want to draw your attention to one verse, verse 13. Notice that, if you will. Now, remember last week, this is what happened. Jesus tells the parable. They go alone. He and his disciples are alone with each other. And as they're alone, the disciples sit there and say, hey, Jesus, what's up with the parables? Okay? Um, We don't even understand what's going on. If you want people to understand you, speak more clearly. Jesus explains why he teaches those parables. But then he says this in light of that in verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So what he's saying is, the key to understanding all the parables is contingent on your getting this truth and this parable of the sower and the seed. Now, what exactly is going on here? Well, remember what we said last week. In order, the key to understanding a parable the understanding these truths, is not through human intellect, and it's not through human effort. The way that you understand the gospel and understand the the parables of God and the teaching of God is not because you're the smartest guy in the room or the hardest working person in the room. It is because you receive it by faith. You receive his teaching and listen to his faith, believing what is being said and acting upon it, knowing that what is being said is true. Okay? So that's the key. So what he's saying is, that's what this parable is about. It's letting you know that unless you approach and listen to the gospel and the word of God and these, and these parables that I teach you by faith, you'll never understand them. So you see what he means? So if you don't get this meaning, then you're never going to listen and understand the rest of the parables. So he moves on from that point and then he begins to unpack it. He begins to explain in more detail what each of these different heart conditions are. And the first one that he begins with is the hard soil. Now, the hard soil, this represents the unresponsive heart. Now, look, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes, and he takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, during the first century, whenever you would set out to, you know, know, plant some crops, you would do it in, in these long rows, and then periodically what you would do is you would just kind of add a little pathway that you could walk through because you didn't want to go doing all that work and then walking all over your crops. So they would have these little pathways that would kind of divide up these different sections of, uh, of the farmland, the crops, the harvest, all right? And so what they would do is they would use these to walk on. So 
The person sowing would walk on them. The workers would walk on them. The animals would walk on them. We even know through Jewish history that, that if you wanted to cut, you were allowed to cut through your neighbor's yard to be able to get to the quickie mark quicker. All right, You could use and you would use those paths. You wouldn't walk all over his crops and ruin his crops. And so all of this walking turned this, this, this dirt rock solid. I mean, it was so incredibly hard, it became impervious to just about anything, especially seed. The, the story, the parable that Jesus told says this, that the sower went to sow some seed, and as he began to sow, some of the seed fell upon the pathway. Some of it fell down on there, and, and when it fell, it didn't fall and seep into the soil because it was too hard. It just hit it, and it just bounced, and it just laid on top of there. Now, this was good not for the people, but for the birds. The birds flying around, they're looking for a cheap meal. They say, ooh, seeds on top. So they fly down and they eat it up, and so, which means that there's no possibility of fruit being produced from these particular seeds. Now, what this particular soil represents is it speaks specifically of an unresponsive heart and a hard heart towards the gospel. These are the types of people who really don't care to even listen to the gospel, they're not going to think seriously upon the gospel because in their minds they have life all figured out. Their heart is very, very much like um, that hard path. Because of the busyness of life and them going about their life, living their life like they see fit, they don't have any time to stop and seriously consider the truth claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, they may hear it, but they're just sitting there and go, thanks, but no thanks. In fact, the way I believe what I think life is all about is completely contrary to what you're saying to me. I have no use for what you say. And the Bible says the gospel just kind of hits them, kind of like hitting a brick wall, falls off, the devil comes, takes it away, and there's no fruit to be produced in their life. In context, it could very well be that Jesus is describing the religious leaders during the day. Do you remember the religious leaders? Uh, just in the last chapter, in chapter 3, we find out that at one point there's a delegation from Jerusalem of scribes that leave Jerusalem to go and check out Jesus. And their job is to listen to Jesus, study Jesus, look at his miracles, listen to his teaching, and come to the determination of whether he is legitimate or not. Now this would usually take a long period of time. But according to the text of Scripture, it didn't take them any time at all. In fact, it appears as though when they even, before they even really heard Jesus, they had already had their minds made up, and they had no need for Jesus. And their life, they thought the purpose of life was to be admired by the populace and by the people. And so when they come in and Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow me, instantly they say, listen, you have nothing to say that really helps me. I know what we're talking about. I have no need of you, and their hearts are hardened. Now, folks, you and I, if you ever share the gospel of Jesus Christ on any regular type uh, 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 of way, then what you find is you're going to run into some hard-hearted people. Unfortunately, many of you and I probably know these hard-hearted people because they're probably family members of ours or friends of ours. We might have family and friends who, you know, you get along so well, you love to be able to see them, and you talk about everything, you can talk about sports, you can even talk about politics, amazingly enough, but here's the deal. Once you begin to talk about Jesus, that's when they begin to clam up, right? And that's when everything begins to become serious, and basically they may look at you and say, listen, I want you to hear me and hear me clearly. The bottom line is this. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. I know what I believe. I'm secure with what I believe. And nothing you say is going to impact that. In fact, what you say is opposite of my worldview. I have no need of it. Do you see that hard heart? 
And as a pastor, I, unfortunately, I've seen this so many times. In a, in a husband or in a wife and even preaching of the Word of God. There's so many times where I preach the Word of God and man, I'm preaching it. I feel like I'm preaching it in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word is just hitting. It's, it's like taking a tennis ball and throwing it against a brick wall. Man, it's just not permeating at all. Their mind is made up. That's the hard path, that hard heart. It's an unresponsive heart to the Word of God. Now there's another type of heart that he mentions here and that's the, the soil. It's the rocky soil. And this represents a shallow heart. Now notice, if you will, in verse, verse 16. It says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, and the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. So during that day in, in Palestine, even if you go today, you'll find that you would think that people would be growing more crops because from what you could tell, there seems to be a lot of dirt there. But all you have to do is begin to dig and you find out that that is only really just a really shallow two to four inches of topsoil. Once you get through that topsoil, you hit a limestone bedrock that permeates really a large section of that land. And so when a farmer comes, he might be able to sow and he sees some soil that looks good. He throws some seed on it, falls in. And because that topsoil is good, it begins to spring up immediately. And then it actually begins to outgrow the other plants, even in the good soil, because what happens is it begins to grow, but it can't grow deep because there's bedrock there. It can't put its roots down, so it uses all of its energy to be able to work up. And so there's the farmer going, man, did you check that plant out? Look at that bad boy go. Check it out. People come over to his house. I want, I want you to see this plant. Don't you think that thing's going to be a real fruit producer right there? And people marvel at this one little plant just kind of planting up there. It's an amazing thing. But what happens is as soon as the sun comes out, that thing begins to shrivel. As, as quickly as it, as it rose up, it begins to shrivel and begins to die and begins to just kind of fall apart until it dries up and it's just nothing more than a tumbleweed. And the reason is, is because when that sun comes out, the roots aren't deep enough. They can't go deep enough to be able to fulfill and to be able to bring in nourishment uh, from the ground and, and, and to be able to feed itself and to, be, and, and to stay flexible with water and nutrients from, from the soil so it just passes away. And so what Jesus says here and is explaining of this particular soil, it, he's explaining a person who experiences a shallow emotional response to the gospel. If you've ever been around church for a period of time, you've seen this, and it is indeed heartbreaking. One of the saddest things you've ever seen. You, you've probably seen somebody comes to church, you know, somebody's invited them, and you know this person in the community, and you're thinking to yourself, but this is probably the last person I expect to respond at an invitation to follow Jesus, to re repent and believe. But you know what? They do. And all of a sudden, they just seem to be radically transformed. They seem to be all about the world. Now they seem to be all about Jesus. They love to talk about Jesus. They love to show up at, at prayer time. They love to be a part of a small group. Every time the church is open, man, they are there. They are fired up. They're, 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 they, they were cheesy Christian t-shirts, right? You know, be wiser rather than blood wiser, right? And they wear these. Some of you might have it. Uh, they have these. And they're just, you know, just all rocking for Jesus. And the rest of the believers in Jesus Christ are going to go, dude, I've got to get my act together. And then the preacher uses that person to shame all the other believers in the church, right? They're like, look, they just got saved. Isn't the power of God awesome? We should strut them out, kind of like that big plant. Wow, they're going to be a big producer. You see that? That's the power of God. That's the power of the gospel. And so all this stuff happens, but then something happens. The Bible says the sun comes out. And the Bible says difficulties. Because of their profession of faith, 
their life begins to become even more difficult. And what happens is difficulties come their way, persecution comes their way, and it's directly related to the belief. James tells us that there's many times where difficulties come our life because what God is doing is testing our faith to see if it's the real thing or not. And so what happens is, as this person begins to go through difficulties, maybe difficulties that they've never experienced before, all of a sudden what they find themselves doing is they find themselves withering up, and they find themselves fading away. And as quickly as they came, now they've completely disappeared. And now you can't find them with the FBI, Scotland Yard, the CIA. You can't find them anywhere. And we begin to say these kind of things. Whatever happened to such and such? Do you remember that? That person was amazing. That person was, was all about it. And, and, and they were all fired up. They were all excited about all these other kinds of things. And from all the outside kind of recognitions of everything, they seemed like they were the real deal. But when these difficulties happen, they begin to say things like this. And, I, and I've seen this. I've seen new believers or professing believers, and there's a difference, come and say this. All of a sudden they begin to, tragedy is struck, there's sickness in themselves, sickness in a life of somebody that they know. Their husband leaves them. Their wife leaves them. A child dies. Some really difficult things. And here's what they ultimately say. They say, how could God? I thought when I came to faith in Jesus that it was supposed to make my life better. And it's made it more difficult. What in the world's going on? Well, listen, let's just clear something up right now. All right? When you come to Jesus, it does not immediately become easier. Okay, can we just let you? You will not have your best life now. I don't care what the book says, all right? It is going to be far more difficult when you come and face the reality of following Jesus, right? The disciples were not having their best life now. They were being killed because of their faith. Are, are, are you guys listening to what I'm saying? And if you're going to follow Jesus, hardship is going to come. But this is what we know. We do know from the Word of God, if the person is truly born again, guess what they do? They draw closer to Jesus. If they're not truly born again, they fade away from Jesus. Now, this is why oftentimes, and, and I understand how we, this is a very sensitive subject within the Southern Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist churches like ours, is somebody comes to faith in Jesus and everybody just sits there and goes, okay, we've got to disciple them, we've got to disciple them. And, and we do, and it's true, we need to disciple them. But here's what happens. The person kind of falls off, and what do we do? We all blame ourselves. Man, we just really blew it that time, didn't we? He came and he got saved, and we didn't, we didn't disciple him good enough, man. He's just gone now. Man, we just blew it. Man, we should have done a better job. You know what I like to do when somebody first came, comes to Jesus? Just sit there and go, we'll see. I rejoice with your decision, brother. But in the back of my mind, not being skeptical. It's not a mean skepticism. Look, man, I've been around this block a couple times. You with me? And sometimes I just kind of sit there and go, I pray for them. I pray, God, that this is real. But time will ultimately tell. And so what I like to let them do is even though we allow them to sit there and disciple them, I don't spend every waking moment for them because what I'm trying to see is, is this real or is this not? And as difficulties begin to hit their life and everything else like that, what I find is those who are truly in the faith become stronger and stronger and stronger. We're like, brother, we see the evidence of God in you. And we begin to embrace them and really even all the more uh, begin to help them grow and to see how God is working inside of their life. And what we found, you know what I've found is many of these folks that come and they, they spring up and they're all excited uh, 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 about God and they, and they do these sorts of things, they oftentimes, and they fade away, they often become some of the greatest antagonists towards Christianity. At one time in their life, they gave Jesus a shot. 
They were in church. They were learning some things. They thought maybe this is what's going to help me have a better life now. And maybe this is going to cure some of the problems in my life. And so they, they kind of put it as a band-aid. And then it doesn't work out. And then they leave. And then what they do is they become embittered towards the church, towards God, towards Jesus. And they let everybody know, you know what, this stuff is ridiculous. It doesn't work. It's a farce. It's for weak-minded people. Don't even entertain it. And those people are usually those who kind of tried it, tasted of it, but it never permeated their heart. It was just kind of a shallow response to the teaching of God's Word. Don't we see this as evidenced in the Word of God? I believe that this heart is evidenced within what we've already learned, that there was the crowd, remember the excitable crowd about Jesus? He comes on the scene, and they begin to tell him how what a wonderful guy he is, and everybody's pouring out, coming from everywhere to see Jesus and to listen to Jesus preach as he's in the boat. They're all fired up for him. We finally get to near the end of Mark, Mark chapter 11, one week before his death, and there's a great crowd going, and you know, sitting there, they give Jesus a donkey, you know, Jesus riding on the donkey, and they start cutting people's bushes down and hedges down and putting the palm fronds down. Hosanna in the highest. And there's Jesus on the donkey. And they're going, look at cute Jesus on the donkey. There he is. We love Jesus. Jesus, we love you, Jesus. The donkey's awesome, Jesus. And they move. He goes by. And the next week, they yell out the very next chapter, crucify him, crucify him. I'm embittered. He didn't pan out. He didn't give me what I ultimately wanted. He's not who I thought he was. He disappointed me. Right? And so this is what the Bible says. Now, what's interesting about this group, and let me, let me tell you, this is where a bad theology comes in. What many people do, those, of course, this isn't Baptist, because Baptists were once saved, always saved people. But those who aren't, this is what they basically say. When they see that, and they see that person get all fired up for Jesus and live for a little while for him, and then they fade away, they'll sit there and go, oh my goodness, he lost his salvation. See, there's clear evidence that you can lose your salvation. Dude, that guy was real. I saw him at the altar. I saw the tears. I saw him throw away his ACDC records. I saw him do all these things that demonstrate. He got rid of all that kind of stuff. Man, I'm telling you, this is the real deal. And dude, he just lost his salvation. Right? Now, for us who are Baptists, who are theologically astute, we sit there and go, oh, my friend. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot... As a matter of fact, because it's not of us, it's a gift of God. He's, he's, he's not going to give it. He's not going to take it away. We are secured until the day of redemption. We are His. Nobody can pluck us out of His hand. We know all of those scriptures, and that's wonderful. So we have to come up with a different name for it. And so the name that we give it is backslidden. Right? What happened to him? Oh, he's, he's backslidden. He was very excited and, and everybody. And we saw him. We saw him. Get, look, we saw him sign the car. I saw him. I got the car. We saw him baptized. He went through the new members class. Man, he even wanted to teach a class. But Brother Mike wouldn't let him yet, right? And so he wanted to teach the class. And so he was all fired up. Dude, that, that, that dude's backslid. We need to play. And what's sad is, don't we often even use that excuse for ones that we love? So oftentimes. My child got saved when he was three and a half at vacation Bible school. Because they were offering hot dogs, and they said, if you accept Jesus, we'll give you this hot dog. I'll accept Jesus. So he says, I'll accept Jesus, ABC, he's me, he, you know, he's, he's all about me, and he gets saved, and then all of a sudden there's no fruit, and they go off and go, I just don't, I just don't understand. I remember when they prayed to receive Christ, and for him to come to the God-sized hole in their heart, I, I'm not understanding this. 
he was able to identify the four, you know, four or five spiritual laws and spiritual truths, and they affirmed that. What's going on? I, I just don't understand. Well, where are they? Well, they've been out of church for 20 years. They're just backslidden. That's backslidden? That, that's the definition of backslidden? The Bible calls that loss. The Bible says that they've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, they went out from us, but they never actually belonged to us. They were never true. They were just that, that sprouting up kind of soil, that, that, that rocky soil. And so the gospel never penetrated their heart. They never produced fruit which was consistent with repentance. There's a third soil. And the third soil is the thorny, thorny, or what I would call the crowded soil. And this represents the divided heart. Now look very quickly at verse 18. The Bible says, and other, others are, are ones sown among the thorns, and there are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, I don't know much about farming. I don't know much about gardens. I don't know much of that. I know a lot of you do. You know much more. I know a little bit through my life, though. And let me tell you what I know. What I know is my wife is all about the planting. She loves the idea. I love the idea. I know that somewhere, everywhere we move or whatever it is, she's always going to ask, hey, listen, and I know she shouldn't get my permission, but you need to know the whole story. Hey, I'm thinking about planting something in the backyard. Can you show me a little place? And you know, you'd think that I would be exuberant and happy, but I'm a horrible miserly of a husband. And I sit there and go, where are you going to plant it, honey? You know, like, you know, I don't know if this ever happens at your house. And she sits there and goes, and I said, what are you going to plant? And it's usually tomatoes. You know, tomatoes are easy to grow. No problem. We can, you, can, you can grow them like in the air. It's an amazing thing, right? Hang them from a, from a coat hanger. You know, you can, you know uh, uh, blueberry bushes, just put the blueberry, they, man, they take care of themselves. Now, what's happening is, listen, I love that idea. I mean, I love the idea of nice, big, juicy, you know, plump, garden, fresh tomatoes that I can slice and put on my turkey sandwich with a little salt and pepper and a little mayonnaise on it. Mmm, yummy, I love that. Or maybe, you know, the blueberries, you know, you're there on Saturday, pancake tie. Hey, grab me some blueberries. Right? Go out to the blueberry bush, grab them, rinse them off a little bit, throw them into the pancakes. Hey, blueberry pancakes. I love the idea. But here's the problem. My wife is good at the planning. She's just not so good at the weeding, right, the weeding part. So she plants, and she's like, go for it. Go, little plant. Go, little plant, right? And I'm sitting here not messing with it, but trying to mow around, and the weeds get bigger and bigger, so I'm getting less and less yard, right? And you see this poor little plant that's literally being overtaken by these big muscular steroid weeds, right? And it's trying to grow, and it's trying to produce, but, you know, it's like no tomato, no blueberry, no anything. And here's what I've learned is, is when it comes to plants and weeds, if the weeds aren't taken care of, the weeds always win. They always win. So what he's talking about is he's talking about a weeding or a, 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 um, a heart that is crowded uh, with other things, essentially a divided heart. In other words, these are people who seem to have interest in the things of God, seem to even have some level of affections for Jesus, you know, even the church, you know, with, hey, the church needs some stuff, let's, let's go and be a part of the church, let's have our family, they seem to kind of be in it, man. This is different than the, than the group that just kind of popped up. These folks are around for a while. But here's the problem. They're here physically, but their minds and their hearts are elsewhere. Their minds and hearts have gone long before their bodies ultimately leave the house of God. And here's why. Because their heart is divided. As much as they seem to love Jesus, there are actually things out there that they love far more. And eventually, those affections for 
of a young man who was trying to win this young girl over. And he desperately wanted to win her. And he comes to her and he says, darling, he says, I want you to know how much I love you. I love you more than anything else in the world. He says, I want to marry you. He says, listen, I'm not a rich man. I don't have much money. I don't have a yacht or a Rolls Royce like Johnny Brown. But I do love you with all my heart. And then the girl, she thought for a moment, and she replied, well, I love you too with all my heart too. Um, but can you tell me a little more about Johnny Brown? And so the idea here is what Jesus says, and he says there are some people that seem to be all about Jesus, but the truth of the matter is that there's things in this world that they love more. And eventually over time, what they do is they're found out, because even though they're a part of it, they end up gravitating to those weeds. And the weed chokes out the word of God. He gives us an example of some of those weeds. He tells us there's three things first. He gives us the cares of the world. This is the anxieties and the cares of the world and the fears of the world. This is, hey man, the economy is going back. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about retirement. So I can work as hard as I can to be able to build up my, my security here so that we can be all secure. And I would say we're trying to do that here in the economy in the United States. Good luck with that. Uh, I hope that works for you. Um, but that's where their part is. The second thing that he talks about is next is the deceitfulness of riches. How deceitful is many of the things. I don't know. How we want them and want it. And the poor person says, the only thing wrong in this world is I don't have enough. If I could just have money, then the rest of my life would be fine. Right? So what do they do? They get what they want. They get more money than they could have ever imagined or even wished for. And what ultimately happens, they sit there and they're still unsatisfied because they still think that they need more. Right? The happiness is really just a little bit further out. I just need a little bit more than, than this. I just need a little bit more. So they keep looking at the sickness of riches. So they spend all their life pursuing those riches. There's a third thing. The heart is divided. The third thing is the desires for other things. Now this could include money, but the, the, the key here is it really can include anything. It can include those things that are inherently evil, and that's usually as Baptists how we think. You know, that's wanting too much alcohol. That's wanting too many drugs. That's wanting too much this, that. It's, you know, bad, too much cable TV. These are all bad. No, look, those could be bad really horrible things. We know that. That are not, they're contrary to God and the glory of God. But it can be anything. That's the point. It could be things that are inherently not evil. It could be football. It could be baseball. It could be even money. Money's not even inherently evil. But the point is, is the desire and the love for those things supersedes the love of the person of Jesus Christ. And so over a period of time, they're here, they're serving, they're doing their thing, but over a period of time, what their heart truly loves wins out. And it crowds out any of that truth and any of that word that they may have heard and any kind of affections that they appeared to have for Jesus, they're choked out and they live for what they want. Remember what Jesus said. He said, a man cannot serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other, or he will hate the one and love the other. No one can serve both God and money. Did you hear that? It's funny. I read that, and here's what we do. Yeah, that's true. I believe that, but it's not true for me. I can still have both things. This is why I tell people, even young people, young, young adults all the time, listen, don't get so wrapped up in sports that it affects your whole life in, in, with a body of a local body of believers inside of a church. What do you mean? Well, listen, just be careful. By the time they start going, all of a sudden they're doing fall ball, they're doing spring ball, they're doing now ball, later ball, today ball, night ball, midnight ball. They're doing all kinds of ball. Dude, as soon as ball is over, we'll get plugged into church. Ball's never over. It's just never over. Right? 
And so you can sit there all you want and say, I love Jesus all I want, but the pattern of your life set, shows and demonstrates that your affections for other things are greater than Christ. And so here we go. We finally, there's the good soil. And let me just close up with this very quickly. It says, now Jesus draws his attention to the good soil in verse 20. He says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Do you see the difference between this and the others? The difference is this soil bears fruit. Fruit in the Bible is evidence and proof of salvation. Okay? It, 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 how do you know that you're saved? Because you know who Jesus is, because you say that he's the Savior, because, I mean, why do you, what's the evidence of a person truly being saved? And I think this is a great source of confusion with folks in the church. Because many of the things we think makes a believer really isn't true evidence that a person is saved at all. Let me give you a picture very quickly of some of these things that people think prove that you're a believer in Christ. First of all, it's visible morality. Visible morality. Man, you seem to have it all together. You seem to do all the right things. You seem to follow the great the, the Ten Commandments. You have a flag waving out on your front yard. Well, he's a good, godly man. Well, he might be a hell-bound Pharisee. Is what he might be. Just because he keeps all the laws. Secondly, intellectual knowledge. You know, thinking that you know everything. Thinking that you know the truth of who Jesus is. James tells us again, even the demons believe that God is one in great theology. But they're not true believers in Jesus Christ. So what you know, just, and now it can't be the only ultimate demonstration that you're truly born again. How about religious involvement? Well, I, you know, listen, do you remember growing up, this is kind of how it was, do you remember the pins that you would get for like perfect, perfect attendance? Anybody remember those things? Some of you might, right? If you got perfect pins, you got this little pin, and you'd go in there and there'd be like a 120-year-old woman, and she'd have pins like from her shoulder down to her feet. Right? She'd limp like this because it was so heavy to be able to get it up. And you'd sit there and go, hey, listen, she goes, what are all those? Well, this is my perfect attendance. And you're like, well, do you know Jesus? Who? Right? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? I mean, well, great, great, you're affiliated with the church, but do you know Jesus? Do you know anything about him? Do you have a relationship with him? Have you repented and believed and placed your faith completely in him? We've got other things, active ministry. You know, people love to serve. They go about, well, well, I'm serving. As long as I kind of put my two cents in and kind of help every once in a while, then I'm okay there. What does the Bible say in Matthew chapter 7? On that day, they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? And do all manner of evil or, or, or manner of good in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And then we have people with the conviction of sin. This is my favorite. I, listen, I know I'm saved because as I'm doing really bad things and I'm down in that keg or sometimes on a light day but down in that pony and I sit there and I eat all this and I watch all these things and then ultimately what happens is I feel really bad after I drink it. I feel really bad after I party. Well, congratulations. You prove that you're a human being. That's what you've proved. Because under God's general grace, what he's done is he's given you a conscience to let you know between what is right and wrong. He's, he's, he's given that to believer and unbeliever. That doesn't prove that you're saved because you feel bad when you intentionally do things wrong. Then the Bible tells us that this assurance is a false assurance. People all the time, oh, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? I prayed a prayer. And I had that guy tell me, don't you ever let anybody talk you out of this. And I said, okay. Okay. And then we've got, what, time of decision? I remember the date, time, or hour. That's all that matters. I have the baptismal certificate. It says it right on there. When I accepted Jesus Christ, the moment, the time I was baptized, 
listen, I'm not trying to make fun of these things in and of themselves. It can be a really meaningful thing to some folks. They can look back at a specific day and say, Jesus saved me on that day. But you know, there are people in, in our church that sit there and go, oh no, I've been living out of this fear forever. They told me if I don't know the time, day, or hour, then I'm not saved. I'm going to figure out what I was. And they're scared to death they're not saved. And I said, well, tell me about your conversion experience. What do you believe? He said, man, all I know is once I was blind and now I see. Once I knew I, I, was, I knew I was a sinner deserving of death, and Jesus Christ revealed himself to me, and he became wonderful and awesome, and by faith I received him. I'm not the same person as I used to be. I'm not the same person as I used to be. I've been changed by his grace and his mercy. Now I love what God loves, and I hate what God hates. I'm like, don't worry about the time around. I think you're good. Right? And they move on. Now, so what are the fruits? Let me go through them very, very quickly. First of all, a love for God. Heaven will not be filled with people who are afraid of hell. It will be filled with only people, primarily, who love God. Number two, repentance of sin. It's not feeling bad, it's turning from sin. Number three, devotion to God's glory. You really care about the glory of God and the glory that He deserves. Number next, continual prayer in God and dependence on God. Another one, selfless love. You know, I was looking after what you could do for yourself. You're looking out for others because God's given you a love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. There's another one, separation from the world. You just don't want to have anything to do with lostness and with sin. Another one is spiritual growth. And finally, obedient, living, and submission to the Word of God. That's how we know. And let me just say this in close, and I need to hurry very quickly. Let me just say this. The majority of the time when I hear this passage preached, it's primarily about, okay, believers, we've got a lot of bad things going on. We need to clear ourselves up. That's not the point of the passage. The point is not about bad believers. The point is about giving us demonstration of who is saved and who is not. Now, is it possible that we can have affections for other things that are beginning to crowd out our love for Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But here's what I would ultimately say. You can't sit back and say, well, I'm a believer. It's okay. I'm going to keep loving this thing more than I love Jesus. Because if you continue that path without re repenting now and at the point that you're convicted of it, it means that you were never in the faith of it before. Does that make sense? So what do we do with this? We repent. Is there anything above God right now? We repent of it. We turn of it right now. That's what the heart of a true believer does. And if you're lost, you sit there and you say, God, save my soul, Jesus. I'm not in the faith. Jesus, we come to you now. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. I ask you, God, in the name of Jesus, to God work in the short period of time that we have, in the time that we have. God, take as much time as you need. Just work in the hearts of our folks. Those who are lost, God, illuminate, save them. I'll be down here front to talk with them if they need to know about Christ. God, those that need to get right with Jesus, may they repent and place their faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand. We stand. We're going to stand together at this time. God bless.
Thank you very much. You may be seated. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time.